This morning we're in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Would have a seat this morning. Um, I want you to imagine as you do that uh, that you are one of these Galatian Christians who actually received this word in the form of a letter all those many, many centuries ago. I want you to imagine maybe that you were a uh, shopkeeper in the Galatian city of Iconium and uh, that you would. just a few short years ago, actually received something really specific uh, from this quirky, intelligent, and passionate man named Paul who was there preaching in your town. You had never heard of him before, uh, but there he was. He was preaching a gospel. Now, you had heard uh, gospels of all kinds uh, throughout the years. A lot of times it was military men coming into town and they had, a, uh, they had good news. They had good news from the front or good news about some piece of Roman infrastructure that they had intended to uh, put into your city. And you heard many kinds of gospel, but this gospel was very different. It was spiritual in nature. This gospel uh, came along the way by this quirky, intelligent, passionate man and, uh, and was about a God. Not many gods, not many of those polytheistic gods, but about one God. And and this one God, uh, as far as you could tell, was uh, named Jesus. And he had come in the form of a man, and he had uh, come and lived uh, a very similar life to the one that you are living, in a very similar area to the one that you are living, but there was something different. Whereas all of these other kinds of gods uh, remained aloof, uh, remained out there, remained separate Uh, This one came to be with you. And whereas those other gods required all kinds of different sacrifices at their uh, big, huge temples, this one came along and made himself a sacrifice. He died as one sacrifice. And then, even more, this gospel said that that one God, Jesus, died and then raised up. 
Paul claimed in this preaching that you heard that Jesus had revealed himself to him after his resurrection and actually sent him out to preach to you that you could live forever. That's the kind of Galatian Christian that I want you to imagine that you were. And now, shortly after Paul had left Shortly after you had uh, heard this gospel and you were skeptical about it, but there was such power in it and there were all of these confirming miracles that caused you to believe. Shortly after that, and you put your faith in Jesus for salvation and started living obediently alongside all of these other new Galatian Christians that maybe weren't a part of your family. They weren't a part of your uh, tribe. They weren't a part of the uh, people. They were just new people to you, and you had started living alongside of them. Shortly thereafter, there were these teachers that came in to the regions of Galatia and started preaching against what Paul had been teaching you. A little while after Paul left, these men came in claiming uh, to be Christians and came teaching that you needed to receive a uh, physical mark for being a Christian, for being one of God's people. You had to uh, remove the foreskin of uh, your body. You had to be circumcised. You had to keep different feasts and festivals in order to be a true and real Christian. That's what these teachers came along saying to you. And you, along with some of the other people, uh, didn't think that that squared off with this message of grace through faith that Paul preached so readily, so earnestly. And, and, and you knew that it was so, like, not square that you said so. You, and along with a couple of other people, uh, told these teachers, hey, this doesn't sound like the same free grace that you received. It doesn't sound like it was received through faith. And in response, those teachers began claiming things about Paul that were really surprising to you. That, that Paul that came in, he, he knew a little bit of it, but he isn't a real apostle. He's like an apostle, like kind of a sub-apostle. He's an apostle from man, not from heaven, not from Jesus, not from the Father. So this was very confusing to you. Why? Because uh, these teachers would have said that back in Jerusalem, there were the real apostles, the ones that had followed Jesus around and received teaching from him firsthand and had gone along the way and were setting up the church there in Jerusalem. And, And so something just doesn't quite seem right, but these men were very convincing. A few of the other people around you started keeping uh, feasts and festivals in a traditional way that that almost seemed tied in with their salvation. There were even some who were going to be circumcised by these men to receive a mark to say outwardly, yes, I am one of God's people. Now, a letter from Paul has reached you. And, and you've gathered up with all of these other Galatian Christians and you've heard all of the things that we've already gone through in chapter 1 where uh, Paul knows what these men are saying and he says, I am an apostle, not from man, but from God. He says, the one true gospel that I came and preached to you is the one true gospel. Don't believe anyone who is teaching you a message contrary to the one that you received from me. And here's what's really great about this. If you're imagining yourself in this place, you're convinced. Why? Because in this penned letter, this one that's being read aloud over all of these Galatian Christians, you can hear Paul's voice. It's really distinctive. 
You can feel that power that you originally sensed when you were standing there in the marketplace receiving his preaching. And somehow you know that it's true. Paul is an apostle. He is an apostle with a message that has been revealed and received through Jesus. But you've got one more problem. You've got one more problem. There's something else that you haven't heard yet from Paul. And it's this. I've started to receive all of this other teaching that says that the apostles over here in Jerusalem are teaching that you need to be circumcised and keeping parts of the law But that's not what Paul said. So here's the question deep in your heart. Here's the concern that you have deep inside of your heart. The problem is you're wondering if there is disunity and disagreement amongst the apostles regarding the very basis of salvation. You're wondering if these teachers are saying something that's right, but that the apostles are just disunified. And anybody who has lived through uh, church uh, divisions and splits and had uh, theological conversations know that these things aren't simply mental. They're things that really bind us together in the gospel. And you know how painful it can be. These Galatian Christians would have been wondering, man, are the apostles disunified? You're not sure whether you feel encouraged by this message or discouraged in the midst of it. You're a little confused, but you know one thing. You've got to get it figured out. And that's where we pick up this morning in Galatians chapter 2, starting right there in verse 1. What we're going to discover this morning is that Christians are freed by faith to fight. That might not sound like a very Christian message, right? That, uh, oh, we're supposed to be loving and peaceful and gentle, The fruit of the Spirit doesn't have fight in it. Paul this morning is going to tell us that Christians are freed by faith in Jesus Christ to actually fight. How are we to fight? We're to fight against additions to the gospel. We're to fight for unity in the gospel. And finally, we will discover that we are to fight for the poor because of the gospel. That's kind of where we're headed this morning. That's what this set of passages is going to teach us. For some context, read there with me in verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. After 14 years. So Paul hasn't been at this just a few short years. He's been on this missionary journey. We started kind of reading about that last week where he was in Damascus. He went into Asia. He, he knew that he needed to go and take this gospel to anybody who would receive it. And he went along the way actually planting churches. And he spent 14 years doing this. You, you were included in that 14 years, if you're still imagining yourself as one of these Galatians. Paul's missionary journey took him from Damascus into Galatia and into Asia. Paul, the commensurate Jew, has not returned to Jerusalem in over a decade. And now he's going to tell us that he went back to Jerusalem. Why? Why did he go to Jerusalem? The first point this morning, Christians are freed by faith to fight against additions to the gospel. I want to read verses 1 through 5 one more time. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, 
the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running and had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There are a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first thing is is that Paul, as he goes up to Jerusalem, takes Barnabas, but he takes another man. He takes Titus. Now, Titus doesn't really sound like Barnabas and Paul and uh, Matthew, James, John. Like, it, it doesn't seem like it's one of these uh, you know, kind of uh, names that you would have heard so far. Why is that? It's because he's a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's uncircumcised. That's what this is all about. He's taking Titus with him. Paul takes Titus, an uncircumcised Greek, to Jerusalem to provoke, to fight, to clarify this point. You see, theology and talk and principles and philosophy are cheap until the rubber meets the road, until you get a sense that this really does have an effect on real people's lives. Here is a Gentile Christian standing in the midst of the apostles there in Jerusalem. And what he goes on to say is is that there were these false brothers. He said that there were these spies. Next week... um, Andrew's going to be uh, talking through verse 14, which actually literally calls them Judaizers in the Greek. That was the name of these false teachers, the, the people that wanted to take on board and kind of import some of the old laws so that you could be saved, not by grace through faith, but so that you could be saved by grace through faith, but then all of these other extra rules. Paul here calls these men false brothers, spies, Judaizers. These were the men that were telling the Gentile Christians that they needed to be circumcised. And what does he say about the fight that he had with them? We did not yield in submission even for a moment. We did not yield in submission even for a moment. Paul goes and opposes and he fights back. He didn't yield to them. He goes up to Jerusalem. And what we need to understand, even for today, is that every Christian, every Christian at some point needs to learn how to fight. So question, is it ever okay to fight? Well, I I just gave you the answer. I think it is okay for Christians to fight. When is it okay for us to fight? Galatians chapter 2 would tell us when there is false teaching when there is false teachers, when there are spies spying out our freedom in the gospel that are trying to add to the gospel. Yes, when teachers attach spiritual sign gifts to the gospel. Have you ever had that happen to you before? I have. I've been told by people that if I don't speak in tongues, if I don't prophesy, if I don't do other kinds of things that I may not truly be saved, When you have somebody that's attaching those spiritual sign gifts to the gospel, it's okay to fight back against that. But not just when they add things like that, when they add things like health and wealth to the gospel, saying that if you're truly a Christian, you'll be uh, receiving all kinds of extra blessings. We need to fight against that. 
That's the truth. If you hear people that come up to you and say, hey, you can be saved by grace through faith, but if you're not truly being healed, if you're not truly experiencing financial blessing, maybe you're not saved. You need to be ready to give a defense, to stand and fight against that kind of false teaching. Here in Texas, when we uh, see people actually attach political agendas to the gospel, you can't truly be a Christian unless you're being super compassionate, super woke. That's a false gospel. If, in, if here in Texas, if you have uh, people attach some sort of red state Republican ideal to the gospel, you need to stand ready to push back against that and fight. Why? Because you are not saved by grace through faith with an R next to your name. You're not saved by grace through faith as long as you're willing to activate on things like racial reconciliation or, or stand ready to be very compassionate to those people that have uh, uh, chosen that they're going to uh, pursue other kinds of lifestyles. We need to be ready. We need to stand ready and willing to fight just like Paul is fighting against those who add things to the gospel. Do not shrink back. Do not yield. Do not make friends with. Do not allow confusion regarding the gospel. Why? Paul tells us. Look here in this passage. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Fighting additions to the gospel allows for a preservation of the one true gospel. Paul came declaring that no good work could save you. No outward sign, no ethnic affiliation could save you. Salvation, again, comes solely by grace, solely through faith. And when other people come to spy out your freedom, fight. Fight for the truth of the gospel. Why? so that the one true gospel can be preserved. I, I, I wonder if that's something that you stand ready to do. Uh, when people add something to the gospel, if you are ready in the midst of a discipleship group or in the midst of a water cooler conversation there at uh, work with a coworker who calls themselves a believer, if you stand ready to fight. Now, does it mean that we fight the way that the world fights, that we fight dirty, that we call names, that we're ungracious, that we're mean-spirited and unkind? Of course not. We fight with grace and peace and truth. Do you know the truth? Are you willing to stand for the truth? Are you willing to fight for the truth like Paul did? So here's what we see. What we see is that the stage is set. Paul has taken Titus up to Jerusalem. And now we've got that begging question this morning. Is unity in the apostolic order, in the foundation of the faith, is it obvious? Or do we have a break? Do we have a division in the apostolic order? Does Paul say something different than Peter and James and John? Or are they in agreement? Are they unified? This is our second point this morning. Christians are freed by faith to fight for unity in the church. Pick up with me again in verse 6 through 9. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, 
When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem and he's standing there not just in front of like a group of like brothers. He actually meets with them somewhat privately and then again in public. And he, he doesn't just meet with like a few people, a few of the leaders. He actually goes and gets an audience with Peter, James, and John. And he's standing there with them, there with Barnabas and Titus. And what happens here is that these influential men, these apostles meet, albeit briefly. And what you need to know is that this was a monumentally important historical event for us. Do you know that this, this meeting right here has impact on you? This thing that happened nearly 2,000 years ago has direct impact on you today. Some of you may have asked the question, well, you know, do I need to uh, circumcise my, uh, my children in order for them to be a part of the faith? Uh, maybe you need to be thinking, does anybody else like wonder uh, from time to time about the validity of our faith, the validity of the Bible, the validity of the things and the cohesiveness and the coherence and the unity of our faith? Does anybody wonder from time to time given all of the schisms in, in throughout church history, what if there was significant disagreement here amongst the apostles? It would have been detrimental. This was a really important meeting. These apostles meeting together on this really crucial issue of how people are saved, it was a really big deal. Our salvation, even how we understand salvation today, comes out of this meeting. Jesus' disciples, the apostles, had received the teaching from Jesus, directly from him. They had received a commission, a great commission, to go baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, making disciples of all nations. Here, we see that Paul stands side by side with these men. And the first thing that he says might be surprising. They added nothing to me. It's a strange thing for Paul to be saying. He's trying to prove that there's unity between all of these apostles. And what does he say right from the get-go? Is this like a petty statement, like a little jab, like he's getting something in there? I went up to Jerusalem. I'm meeting with these apostles. I stood there with Titus, and these men added nothing to me. What does he mean by that? What does he mean that they added nothing to him? Paul's apostleship was received from Jesus. It is sure and it is independent of these apostles there. So we're in this really kind of interesting situation that, that with, uh, with Paul's apostleship, it wasn't dependent on these guys. But he also sits here and says, hey, they, they didn't add anything to me, but we're going to discover here in just one moment that he says that he wanted to make sure that he wasn't wasting his time with an untrue gospel. So while he didn't necessarily need them to affirm his apostleship, it was very important that the one thing 
that happens here happened. That there is unity. They added nothing to me. Paul did not go to them because he was unsure or second-guessing. He went for the sake of unity. And what did they do when they heard from him, when they saw this grace, when they see, saw how he was entrusted with the gospel for those who were uncircumcised? What did they do? They extended the right hand of fellowship. Paul says, they added nothing to me. I'm independent. I had the one true gospel. I saw the resurrected Jesus. He gave me the gospel. I've spent the last 14 years going around and planting churches. Now I'm standing here with all of these apostles, and they gave the right hand of fellowship with me. There is unity in the body. If we're wondering whether or not there is unity in our faith, whether or not we can truly trust that we are saved by grace through faith, that's what this meeting was about. Are you ever tempted in those moments to wonder whether or not you are truly saved, whether or not the gospel is so sweet, but is it really true that you can be saved by grace through faith? This meeting declares yes. It declares yes. You can truly be saved by grace through faith. Who affirms it? Peter. Who affirms it? Paul. The right hand of fellowship. They affirmed that when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, and when they perceived that grace was given to me, Peter could see and perceive that the truth of the gospel and Paul's apostleship was genuine. It was authentic. Here's the application for us this morning. Do you ever go to like another place and you, you're like, man, there's light in that person. Well, there's just something different about them. They're kind in a way that the world just typically isn't kind. They're, uh, they're peaceful. They're content in ways that, you know, typically I just don't see. I wonder if that person's a believer. How sweet it is when you perceive the light of Christ in a brother or sister that you meet. How sweet it is when our gospel and our doctrine align. Shortly after getting married, uh, Sawyer and I... Um, uh, we had to go separate ways. She went uh, on a vacation with her family because I had to go on a work trip for two weeks up to New York. And there, uh, we, I was partnered with another guy from, uh, from my company. And uh, you know, we had this suite. And I walked in and everything. I'm just like, this guy is just different. I'll bet he's a believer. How unlikely would it be? And, and through like 10 minutes of conversation, found out that there was great unity that we listened to a lot of the same things and read a lot of the same resources. He was a brother, and it was so encouraging to me. It was affirming to me. Do you ever get that sense of affirmation when you like, meet someone from a different continent and they believe the same gospel that you do? And it's just affirming. It's like, oh man, the gospel is real. It's not just something here in Western society. It's something that I can talk to somebody from Taiwan and we have fellowship the right hand of fellowship is so encouraging that you can talk to somebody who's from continental Europe and uh, you just have the right hand of fellowship. You believe the same things. It's almost surprising in some way, but it's encouraging. Why? Because there's unity in the faith and we ought to be willing to fight for it. Christians ought to fight for unity in the church, not assume it, not hope for it, 
What did, what did Paul have to do to go up to Jerusalem? He had to walk. Paul spent a, a relatively short period of time here in Jerusalem. And the only reason why he went up there was to have unity in the faith. What did he have to do? He had to make a huge sacrifice. He had to take time off of the field, take time away from these beloved churches that he was planting, and walk halfway across a continent to go and see his brothers that were there in Jerusalem. It was sacrificial. He had to do something. He had to fight for faith and unity. How can this kind of unity be possible across continents and cultures and personality types? Verse 8 tells us what this kind of unity looks like. He who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry also worked through me, Paul says. How can this kind of unity be? Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 says, And I tell you, you are Peter, you are Petros. Jesus is calling Peter the rock, and he says, on this rock I will build my church. Then in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, it says, Brother Saul, Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that I may come to you, that you may receive your sight, and that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. He who is at work in you is also at work in me. Paul is saying he who is at work in Peter's apostolic ministry was also at work in me. Here the Galatians have a testimony to the unity of these church fathers and they have it in Jesus. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Does anybody struggle with doubt? Paul's got your back. He struggled with like a little bit of uh, lack of assurance here, and he goes and he sees these men, and they have fellowship, they have unity. I went up because of a revelation and set before them the gospel in order to make sure that I was not running and had not run in vain. And here's what you need to hear this morning. It's not just the same one who was working at Peter is at work in Paul. It's the same one who is at work in those two apostles is now, today, this very moment, here at work in you. That's the essence of the gospel. It's not just that these apostles received a blessing of the Spirit. It's not just that they received the gospel from Jesus. It's that today, here, The one who was at work in them is also at work in you. Though these two men were separated by geography and life experience and personality and ministry focus, they are unified. There is one gospel revealed by one Savior for the glory of one Father and the power of one Holy Spirit. We are freed by faith to fight because Jesus fought to free all of us on the cross. We are free in faith to fight because Jesus fought for us on the cross. 
If you're wondering where this kind of unity uh, comes from, if you're wondering how City Church can have this kind of gospel unity to fight for the right things, to fight against the right things, if you're wondering how any of that stuff can happen, it is only empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who fought for us, that we can be the ones who fight against the tyranny of untruths and lies that are trying to be attached all the time to the gospel, that we can fight for unity in our faith. And there's one more point here that seems almost like an appendage on the whole thing. If you read through all of this, you almost take a look at verse 10, the only verse that we haven't read yet, and you kind of wonder, was this just kind of stuck in at the end? Why is it that verse 10 is here? Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It almost feels like an attachment, does it? A little bit. Here's the last point this morning. Christians are freed by faith to fight for the poor. We may be tempted to think that it was attached, but here's the truth. The Jewish Christians had lost their entire support system. So it may have been that in polytheistic Galatia, that if you became a Christian, of course you had sufferings. Of course there were things that you didn't have access to anymore. But in Jerusalem, if you were to put your faith in Jesus Christ, you lost everything. About five years ago, I went to Sri Lanka to meet a, uh, to meet a man uh, named Nizur. And Nizur had actually, he was from a Muslim uh, background. He was from a ma- Muslim household. And uh, here's something that's really interesting. A woman, a really faithful Christian woman on Facebook led him to Christ from a Muslim background. And I got to meet Nizur. But, but one of the things that we had to do when I went there was we had to be quiet about it. He still lived, as was their custom, in his father's home. If his father had known that he had become a believer, he would have been put out of that home. He was uh, betrothed, not, he was engaged to be married, and the uh, person that he was, uh, that had an arranged marriage with, their family didn't know that he was a Christian. So he was living this life where at a moment's notice, if anybody had found out that he was a Christian, he would have lost everything. He would have been put out of the most important societal structure, family. This is exactly what was happening to Jewish Christians there. The Jews had built a community of love and care. They had all of these laws to help take care of the poor. And the moment that you place faith in Jesus Christ, you were out. You were unplugged from that whole community. And Peter tells Paul, hey, we're unified. I've, just, I've got one more request. As you're going out to all of these other churches, would you remember the poor that are here in Jerusalem? And Paul goes, that's the very thing I was eager to do. I came, and I, even just in this short period of time, I see my brothers and sisters in Christ from a Jewish background, and they're suffering. They're poor. And they have no societal constructs to help lift them out of their poverty. They're being forgotten. And what Paul spends the next several decades of his life doing is going out on another missionary journey, collecting alms. And what does he do with those alms? You've read it before in Acts. He sends it back 
to the church there in Jerusalem, and they're distributed to the poor. You have to fight for the poor. Why? Because we're unified in a faith. We're fighting for unity in a faith. This isn't just some attachment. This is a natural overflow of the gospel. We must fight eagerly for the poor. Peter says, not only are we willing to extend the right hand of fellowship to you, but we really need your help. Would you display the unity of our faith by taking up these alms and sending them back to care for the poor? We will see multiple times that Paul does this very thing, and he was eager to do it. Why? Because there is something inseparable about the gospel and caring for one another here in the faith. Why? Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus was very concerned about the salvation of the poor in spirit. There's no way to take these things apart, so we as believers fight for the poor. We fight for the poor, for the unity of the faith. We fight for the poor to uphold and to protect the gospel from additions being brought in. The truth, beloved, is that we have to know. We have to know that Christians are freed by faith to fight. Fight against additions to the gospel, fight for unity in the gospel, and fight for the poor because of the gospel. The hard-fought, hard-won gospel does not leave room for pacifism. Galatians tells us again and again that Christians have received freedom through faith in Jesus Christ to actually do things. We didn't just receive faith to do whatever we wanted. We have to do some things. This week, my earnest goal is that you learn to fight for the right things, to fight against those who try to add things to the gospel, We're surrounded by modern-day Judaizers who would love nothing more than to bring us into slavery, like Paul talks about. We fight for unity in the church. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, but go one step farther and prioritize, work for, and fight for unity with brothers and sisters. And finally... We fight for the poor, recognizing that in doing so, the world will see Jesus' unrelenting pursuit of the spiritually impoverished. Bow with me in prayer. God and Father, we ask you for your help to fight. Father, would you allow us to pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Lord, would you help us to fight the good fight of the faith, to take hold of eternal life to which you called us and to which the good confession was made in the presence of many witnesses. Father, I ask you that you would charge us, that you would charge us to give life because we have received life in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray that you would bless us. Lord, that the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord and lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, Lord, that you would allow for us to honor him in his eternal dominion. Amen.